G'day everyone and thanks for coming along to the incredibly improved Planet Talks tent since last time I was here in what was affectionately known as the ditch over there. So um, thank you for this beautiful and salubrious tent accommodation. My name's Bernie Hobbs, I'm at the Science Unit at Radio National, the ABC, and I am delighted. In fact, when Vic asked me if I was available to host this session, called We Can Still Fix This, I thought I have to hope, host it because I bloody well hope we can. And I'm sure that that's a feeling that most of us have had. I did try and get a team hurrah out back. Felt a little bit like Nigel Nomates. Uh, so it is a bit more of a complex issue than, uh, than we might... Oh, no, I think all of us here know that it's a complex issue. But we're going to be having a frank but very human discussion this afternoon. And I know most of you would have been to countless talks, countless presentations, countless films, countless whatever about climate change and what we need to do over the past decades. Um, and everyone up here has certainly been working in that arena. Uh, but like me, you would have felt a shift in the conversation, a shift in the urgency in what's been going on over the last summer, if not previously. So we are desperately looking to what we can do to fix this situation and it's going to be a lot bigger than um, the previous discussions we've had just focusing on climate change. So to introduce our four speakers, we've got 40, 45 minutes to have a discussion here and then we're going to you for your questions for the last 15 minutes. Um, to introduce our speakers, I'm going to ask each of them because I said it's got to be human and we're at a time now where we're beyond just numbers and, and ideas. We have to be connecting with each other. So I'm just going to ask each of you to just give us, I guess, um, the thing or the moment or the experience, if there was one, that really turned you on to committing yourself to working in this sphere, to making, to making a change. So just starting on my far left, um, you may have seen rock star Damon Gamo. Uh, you may have heard him getting a shout out from the uber rock star Christiana Figueres in the, I know, I know. I'm sorry I'm not her, but uh, <laughs> she had other things to do. Um, so she gave Damon a shout out for his film 2040, which we'll be hearing about in a moment. But Damon, you know, you went from an actor, not on Neighbours, as you clarified earlier, uh, an actor and filmmaker um, making 2040. But what was it? Was there a moment where you just thought, I have got to get into this boots and all? Yeah, I mean, I'd always sort of had uh, a passing interest in this topic and cared about environmental issues, but never at a deeper level. And I, our first daughter came along and she was about one and a half. And I found myself struggling to even finish reading articles about the environment. I just couldn't get my head around it if it was reading about sort of tipping points around you know permafrost or whatever it might be and one day I was halfway through an article and then I moved to the next and I actually stopped and thought why I've got a daughter why can't I connect with this topic and so I reached out to a couple of people and was put in touch with an environmental psychologist in the US named Renee Lertzman and she sort of profoundly changed my thinking on this and talked about that all of us have this window of tolerance where we can only we only have capacity for a certain amount of overwhelming information and she also said that the neuroscience says that if you only hear information that comes with fear and dread and overwhelm, that it can activate a part of our brain called the limbic system. And when that limbic system's activated, it shuts down the prefrontal cortex, which is where we problem solve and we think creatively. So I, I just sort of sat there and thought, well, okay, there's room for a different narrative. Like, mm. it's not to shy away from the urgency of what's happening, 
Uh, there's a beautiful quote by Raymond Williams, the, the, the author, and he said, to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And I think we've mm. just done too much of the convincing despair. And, um, okay. Well, we'll get to you in a moment, Will. I'm pretty sure it was your boring articles that um, Damon couldn't get through, but don't take it personally, okay? We, we all struggle. Factually double tick, but engagement... It was the ger journalists. It was yeah. the journalists. <laughs> now, um, Michelle Lim is, a, um, is an environmental academic lawyer, an academic environmental lawyer at Adelaide University, uh, which is, you know, not necessarily a career that, you know, is up in bright lights when you're at high school as something that's possible or an option. What was it in your life that, uh, that made you clinch to, um, to working in this arena. You're clearly working on securing biodiversity, trying to make frameworks that deal with the extinction crisis. We'll come to that later. But what brought you in? So ever since I was a little girl, I've wanted to address the extinction crisis. So even in the 90s, it was clear that we were losing many of the most beautiful species on Earth. And I was the little girl writing to the radio programs about saving orangutans, saving dugongs. And then in my academic career, I was reading a lot of Will's papers, so... <laughs> but she's a lawyer, so she's got a high tolerance for turgid <laughs> documents. In case anyone doesn't know, in sustainability science, that's yep. the rock star over there, in case you didn't know. So... Reading about Anthropocene, writing about how law can have a role in the Anthropocene. And then it was Christmas Eve, our most recent Christmas Eve. I'd flown into Tamworth, so that's where my mum lives, where our family was gathering for Christmas. And talk about peak Anthropocene, too hot to be running outside, in an air-conditioned gym, doing sprints on the treadmill and the screens were showing everything that was happening with the bushfires. Mm. Now, I don't recommend this, but doing sprints, ugly crying about the bushfire crisis, and it was that sense of grief. Mm. And I don't think the tipping point was exactly there. It was how I felt over a couple, maybe more than a couple of weeks, a few weeks needing to climb out from, from where we can't act from grief, but what really spurred me on in mm. terms of what we need to do moving forward to address this issue that we... It made it visceral. I think exactly. it made it visceral and real yeah. for, for yeah. all of us who were here over summer. Um, now, Will, you are a rock star of um, sustainability science and emission science and carbon budgets. When was the moment for you? Well, the, fir the first thing I did was I learned never to read my own papers. Because that was a big, big mistake. That no, speaks volumes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, actually, it was, it was way back in 1970, um, and I was in my last year of engineering school back in America. And it was a very cold February night. February is, of course, winter back there. Just a little um, bit closer. And I was, I was at the University of Missouri. Uh, snow was coming down. I'd been taught over five years of engineering that bigger and better was the only way to go that we have to get wealthier, we have to make things better and faster, consume more. And walking around that night, I thought, is this actually going to work? Uh, so I thought, I really got more interested in studying how the Earth operated, not how engineers thought things operated, uh, and what our role might be. Um, and I've been fascinated by that ever since, going through um, 
uh, earth system science, Anthropocene, climate change, uh, biodiversity loss, the biosphere, how it functions. Fascinating career. Uh, but yeah, it can be a bit depressing at times. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, if you're finishing uni in 1970, yeah. depression and anxiety is good for ageing because uh, you do not look in <laughs> any way. Well, it's good news for the rest of us. <laughs> so we're facing it. Um, now, Sandy Vashore, who everyone from Adelaide will know as the, uh, the Lord Mayor of Adelaide for the last year and a half, and um, you've been on a big journey, which we'll come to later, about, um, about what... Adelaide, South Australia can can do uh, in the dearth of leadership from other arenas. But um, what was your moment, or where did it kick off for you, Sandy? I'm still working on my rock star status. I'm a bit of intimidated. <laughs> oh, goes without saying, Sandy's the only one with a cape and big metal <laughs> chain that she can bring out. She's got the super power. My costume. bling. Um, <laughs> Look, there's, there's two points, actually, that I remember. I actually came to the, the, the climate awakening through, through WOMAD, actually. I worked on WOMADelaide for five years. Um, I was Ian Scobie's associate director. And what we did is made a philosophical decision to manage the waste streams that came in and out of this site. So we were the first festival in Australia to uh, try to get to zero waste, do, you know, separation of waste, uh, bring in cornstarch clups instead of plastic, bring in bamboo instead of plastic. And, um, and I'll... I'll, uh, I'll pass that on to Ian Scobie and Christy, who was the site manager at the time. But all of us got behind it, and we got behind it in a, in, a, in a really physical way in terms of this is what we want to do. This is we are going to make sure that this is the most sustainable festival and be true to our word. And um, I think the second thing... So I took that into the council with me. I did the first plastic three, three um, compostable cup sort of uh, trials in the city. But... The next thing is actually having children and, um, you know, like you, Naomi, you know, children make things very real and uh, watching what they're struggling with and what, how they are reacting to what's happening in the world has made it very, very real and uh, making sure that each of us does our bit is uh, what I've committed to. So I really want us to bear in mind that I think a lot of us here know that the challenge is massive. A lot of us... Well, I don't know. How many are confident that we can still fix this? So, maybe a quarter, a third. No, and I think that's very real. We hear nothing um, but scarily bad news. And that's in some ways appropriate because the, all the indicators, all the measures are scary. But we do have some... Uh, some, I guess, other ways of looking at what could be possible and what it will take to make that other future possible and just how long we have got, not very, is the answer there, to make that future possible. So I will start... I don't want you to think we're going all Pollyanna, but I will start with you, Damon, um, and the film 2040, which... Who has seen the film? Okay, slightly more than that one quarter. Oh, it's the people... The people who haven't seen the film who think we don't have a chance. <laughs> okay, so um, I have to say I saw it at a fundraising thing maybe in September or something and I was so thankful because I was in the midst of a climate grief episode of about a month long and it was one of the things that just gave me something to hang on to. Can you tell us a bit, for those who haven't seen the film, about what it is, what is the story that you are telling in that film and what is it that gives you confidence that we can fix this? Yeah, I mean, the film is a response to this sort of apocalyptic narrative that we keep getting in the mainstream. And I thought as a father, 
I want to be able to tell my daughter the reality of what's going on and be honest about that. But what I didn't have in my arsenal was the solutions or things that we might be able to do to change it. So it was like, you know, it, it's all well and good to sound the fire alarm, but you've got to show people where the exits are. And I felt I didn't have the exits. And that was bothering me as a parent. So the more I reached out to about 150 different academics on Skype, I spent eight months of researching. And straight away, I just I couldn't believe how many great things are going on out there that we're just not hearing about in the mainstream press. And I thought, people need to know this, because the more I was engaged in them, I felt myself light up. I felt more motivated to get involved. I wanted to highlight some of these people that were doing extraordinary things, because most of us aren't privy to that. Um, you know, one example, for example, that a lot of people might not know about is that the people of Ethiopia last year, in just 12 hours, planted 350 million trees in 12 hours. I mean, this is what we're capable of as human beings when our backs are against the wall. No one reported that in the mainstream. You know, we're not getting that, and I think we have to understand particularly in this country, that we have one of the most tightly controlled media landscapes in the world. We have a handful of people that control our media with vested interests in keeping the status quo and links to the extractive industries. And that is a problem in our country. And when you travel the world and... <laughs> when, you, when you see what other countries are doing, it's hard to not feel frustrated by that because there are other countries that are a long way ahead of us for a variety of reasons. So. I guess the film was a, an exercise in amplification of bringing those stories to life, but also that the film really is a small part of a much larger ecosystem we created, which gave people entry points so that once they saw the film, their heart was open, they wanted to get involved, instead of 10 minutes later being on social media and the inertia of the system swallows you up and you lose that lovely moment, how can we capture that and get people to act? So we set up something with about 50 different organisations and the response to that has been the most heartwarming, that a lot of the solutions in the film have been brought to life by our community. So there's a seaweed solution in the film we show that's raised nearly $700,000 through people's $10 and $15 donations. That's now getting built in Tasmania because people cared and they wanted something to do. And so, for people who haven't seen the film, uh, it's focusing on five solutions that are available now, ready at scale or to be scaled. The technology is existing to draw down emissions so we can um, compensate for some of the excesses. Yeah, and I'll, I'll quickly say that was important is that, you know, I think most people here will be aware, but climate change is a symptom. You know, and it, it's one symptom, and it gets a lot of media attention, but there are so many other pressing issues, and this is something we can't tinker around the edges with. This does require systemic shifts in a lot of ways, in agriculture, in transport, in energy, uh, and, and our resource use. So I think it's important to frame that, that the media often just talks about climate, but even if we dealt with our emissions and got to zero emissions tomorrow, we've already got the excess carbon locked into the atmosphere that increases our warming for decades. But then we've also only got 60 years of topsoil left. We're going to have more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050. This is a holistic problem that needs to be addressed in a holistic way. So... Is your next film going to be not just smashing the patriarchy, which I'll donate $10 to right now, um, but... <laughs> Is it going to be about, you know, a complete revolution and completely changing the way we do things or is that beyond the, the scope of...? Well, look, I think that narrative's out there, but this might be a controversial position, but I don't think people respond that well to that antagonistic approach. I think we've got to be a bit smarter and humanise this issue a bit more. That's out there, that's existed, I don't have a problem with that, but what we're offering is different entry points for people that don't want to go and glue their hands to the stoby poles. There are people that need to do that, and that's terrific, but that's not going to get everyone in. Mm -hmm. So we actually need to not be binary about this and think of really different ways to involve everyone so they feel they can get involved. And that's obviously touched the audience, both for the film and uh, 
um, and in the broader social media scape. Sandy, you're... Yeah, no, Benny, uh, Damon and I were speaking about this backstage and just talking about how we sort of are, are tracking the middle ground to say, you know, instead of talking about emergencies or crises, what we're trying to do is have some very practical things because each of one has the buying power to make choices. So we can choose to go plastic free. We can choose what transport we... We can choose so many things and so there's lots that people can do and it's really bringing it down to two or three things. Mm. And even those um, that may not be on board with the whole climate action, and we, we all know those people, if you talk about water waste and greening, they're pretty much on board. And so it's actually how you have the conversation a lot of the time to bring people with you to actually put things in place that are going to make a difference. Okay, and which brings us to you and the work that um, Adelaide Council is doing in conjunction with the whole of the state. I mean, we've, Damon's given us a, a sort of big picture overview of an approach and a, a way of telling story, which I think everyone here is very much on board with. You know, it used to be such a science kind of panel to have and now everything climate change is about how we frame the story. That's what humans respond to. Um, Sandy, yeah. yeah, well, I, look, I'm really proud of the work that Adelaide's doing and has been doing. We've got a carbon-neutral Adelaide program and uh, we've also got a partners program and I think there's nearly 170 businesses that have joined. And uh, Will and I were talking about the work that's been done with the ACT and in Adelaide and uh, also I chair the... Um, Here, have this one. I also chair the uh, Capital City Council of Lord Mayors and so all of the capital cities and 75% of Australia's population are in the capital cities have got together and put out our climate statement to make sure that we continue to advocate at federal level for proper policy and also that we can actually share knowledge and, and be ahead of this game. So what's actually happening on the ground? Give us some really practical... Yeah, yours is working now. <laughs> Not that I don't trust you, but... <laughs> Um, give me some examples of what, um, what Adelaide is actually doing, what you've been able to do in conjunction between the council and the state and what it's taken to yeah. get that working. And I guess, um, uh, how many people are from Adelaide? Just as a... Just okay, seven so, or eight. So one of the things that uh, I'm really, really pleased about is that the state government, which is a Liberal government, is going against the grain and have put out their direction statement and a they are doing a whole-of-government strategy. And they have really been quite extraordinary in working with us at local government level to try and actually put out practical actions around plastic-free zones. Uh, we've done the first trials around um, electric vehicle strategies, around, you know, changing of lighting to LED, so, uh, and also, of course, green energy. So, um, uh, Adelaide, I'm going to, uh, you know, blow my own horn for a minute, but Adelaide uh, signed only a few weeks ago 100% procurement of uh, electricity from renewable sources, and it's the first council in South Australia to do so. So, and um, thank you. And, uh, and we have, as a, a council of capital city Lord Mayors, all signed up to try and do exactly the same Which thing. Which is massive. Absolutely massive. And the state government is right behind us with that whole procurement and actually understanding that green energy is a huge opportunity for our state. So I'm very proud of it. And we were saying Tasmania as well, going for 200% renewable. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, well, we, it is an export market, and that's what Damon was saying. Well, you know, it is an export market. If so only Queensland had sunshine, uh, that it could... <laughs> Sorry, I'm from Queensland, so I can... I can say that with Well, Brisbane shame. did sign up. You know, yeah, they're, I know. they're with us, you know, and so, so I think we've got a really strong voice and we're doing what we can on federal level as well. 
Okay. Now, I do want to bring you in, Michelle, but I think we'll just have a little bit of a numbers assessment on the, uh, on the climate change first before we expand to extinction, which is another one of the key things we're all deeply concerned about. So, Will, having heard the, the kinds of um, ideas and, um, and actions that have been discussed so far, um, how much time have we got to fix this using these kinds of strategies? Yeah, that's going to be our challenge. I, I think the really positive thing is we have so many things now that we didn't even have five years ago that we can tackle this with. Uh, it's a race against time. If you look at what we call the carbon budget, which is pretty easy to understand, uh, how much carbon can we still emit before we reach the Paris targets? Uh, so uh, if you look at that and then say, how fast do we have to move? We basically globally need to get cut emissions by half by 2030. That's 10 years' time. Uh, we did it in Canberra. In fact, we cut emissions by 60% in 10 years' time. Adelaide's, I think, close on our heels. So you can do it, uh, but you've got to set your mind to do it. And then we basically have to hit net zero around about 2040 or so. Uh, and then we will be, I think, reasonably nicely within the Paris targets. And when you say the Paris targets, that's not the one and a half degrees? No, it's going to be closer to 1.7 or 1.8 when we do the sums. Uh, but uh, hopefully that will be livable. Uh, and then maybe, as, as Damon was pointing out, we may have some techniques where we bring that back down uh, af afterwards. But I think we're going to go a little bit beyond 1.5. We're about 1.1 today. Um, I think we've pretty much locked in 1.3 to 1.4 with the infrastructure and everything we've got in today. So just being really clear on this, the summer that we just had is a 1.1 That's about a 1.1 summer. .1 summer. Uh, um, if we're locked in effectively to 1.3, 1.4, we're going to be seeing not less of those summers. We are definitely going to be seeing... Yeah, I think... But there's a really interesting point there. And the reason we saw those summers uh, in eastern Australia, and you saw them in Kangaroo Island for sure, mm. uh, was that we locked that in a couple of decades ago uh, when we didn't start getting emissions down. I'm talking globally now, not just, just us in Australia. But so, so you pay for your past inaction. So because we really haven't gotten going until about now and we really look like we're going to be moving, we've locked in a few more tenths of a degree that we're going to have to deal with, and that means uh, worsening fire weather for a decade or two, uh, rising sea levels. Well, they're going to go on for a few centuries, but if we can control the rate, that's absolutely critical. Um, the Great Barrier Reef, not too optimistic about that because it's already suffering badly at 1 to 1.1, 1.3 or 1.4, and I'm, it's going to be on its knees. Uh, so there are some things we have to pay for from what we've done in the past. But the point is, if we get moving now, we can prevent a lot of worse things in the future. And that's what we've got to aim our sights for now. And what does that moving look like? Okay, what, what, what should Australia do? I think you can boil this down really simply. We need to cut our domestic emissions by 50% by 2030. That actually now is so doable, and I think you can actually benefit both economically and socially by doing it. How do you do it? Well, South Australia is well on the way. We're, South Australia's way we're 50% renewable now. ACT is 100% renewable. Our economies haven't fallen apart. We've actually benefited in Canberra for that. The technology is there to get Australia's electricity emissions completely out of the country by 2030. No problem. That would cut 30 to 35% of that 50% straight away. Start electrifying transport. Work on waste. All these things have big side benefits you can readily see your way to a 50% reduction by 2050. 
By that time, we'll have 2030. better... 2030. Uh, 2030, 2030, sorry. Thanks. Yeah. By that time, we'll have better technologies, we'll have momentum, and I think we'll be on the way. But that first step, like we had to take in Canberra in 2011, South Australia's taken about the same time, that's got us on the right track. The rest of the country has to take that step now, not 2025, now. And... Is, is just state governments or territory governments and local governments taking that step going to be enough to get that kind of change? Good question. I think the first thing is we've got to get our federal government just to get out of the way. Uh, that, would be, that would be a big first step. <laughs> well... I made a suggestion, if they actually aren't going to do anything about it, just hand it over to local government and we'll do it for them. Exactly. Can I add to that point? So what we've heard so far is a lot about how we might use technical solutions, but importantly, the democratic solutions are at our fingertips as well. So Professor Alex Riley, my colleague at the University of Adelaide, did an excellent talk which distilled what some of these options are. They're very obvious, but sometimes we forget what they are. Number one is voting. Be very interesting to see how Cabago votes in the next election but also demonstrating. Not everybody has to demonstrate. Having a range of democratic options is important, but, I th and the, I could be corrected on this, but the figure to create actual systematic, systematic social change, the figure of people who need to be involved, is very, very small, something like 3.2% that need to be out in the streets. So your just being there matters. There's also a range of other ways. Writing letters to politicians. Federal politicians, yes, federal politicians really need to get letters. Um, but also supporting what's done in, at the local government le level, but also telling those stories, mm. standing on the street, exercising your right, not necessarily of protest, but your, your right of freedom of speech. We have these rights in this country and we need to make sure that we are making use of them because we need to now. And um, um, I would say it's really important to add that that, that that groundswell that is occurring is actually making a difference. Mm. And we hear it quite a lot through our channels. We, we took the film to the Climate Action Summit in September last year and the CEO of Maersk, who's one of the biggest shipping transport companies in the world, they're a Danish company, huge carbon footprint. They said they've actually pledged to lower their emissions by mid-century because they can't get staff out of the universities in Europe anymore. Mm. The kids are saying, why would we work for you if you're destroying our future? So that voice is actually making a difference. Already. Fantastic. Now, Michelle, I want you to take us a little bit broader, and we've heard um, some mentions of this, that this is obviously a bigger issue than just carbon dioxide, than just emissions, you know, than plastics. It's systemic. Your career is really working desperately on trying to do something to stem the extinction crisis. So what is it, maybe um, if we can just look at what the problem is with the kind of uh, rules and regulations and protections that we've got for biodiversity that have landed us in this, you know, pot of boiling water and what we need to do um, to get out of here. No biggie, just, you know, a couple of... <laughs> Thanks, but, but first a bit of context. Yep. So I've worked with the IPBES report, and now you will see why it needs an acronym because it's the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. I think we all wrote that. <laughs> yeah. 
essentially, it's the IPCC for biodiversity. And the key findings that came out of that global report, you might have heard of it referred to a UN biodiversity report. Key findings that come out of that report are biodiversity is fundamentally important for its own sake, but for the range of contributions it makes to our well-being, whether it be fresh air, fresh water, the food we eat, everything, essentially. The ecosystem services, that's been called. It, well, yeah. it's, re, it's been reframed as nature's contributions to people, but we can have that debate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the second point is that biodiversity is under threat like never before seen in, in human history. The third and very important point is we can still fix this, but we need to act now. And picking up on Damon's point, the stat... Um, Overthrowing the status quo, the status quo vested interests are going to be some of the roadblocks we face in shifting all of this. So in terms of if we look at law, law has an important role in shaping how we act. But current laws around biodiversity, around environmental issues generally are too sector-based. They're too focused on one particular issue. They need to be to take into account a much broader range of issues than they currently do. So that, in a nutshell, would be a, a really good starting point. Right, so you're looking at legislation, a legislative framework that will help, like a global legislative framework that will help people act locally for a more holistic approach to their biodiversity, their na services, nature, or things nature provide for us. So um, it means changing how we look at law at a range of scales, whether it be global, okay. whether it be national, whether it be local, how those each bring into a, a range of, of different issues. Currently, they tend to be very... Well, if you look at South Australia, for, for instance, your laws around plants are different from your laws that are, um, tell you how to deal with animals. Animals on land are treated differently to animals in water. Climate change is dealt with completely separately, but they all need to be, and, and how we live, so um, in terms of planning laws, etc., etc., that's a separate thing again. This, as Damon started saying, and as Will has done so much work on at, in the planetary sense, all of this needs to be treated as a much more interconnected issue um, and addressed in that way because it is. Yeah. 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 And, and, um, and I think that's the depth of the conversation we have to have right now, which is that, you know, we have a system that we've created that is based predominantly on competition and rivalry, and it's based on extraction. And unless we pivot to one that is based on a more interconnected symbiotic framework, we're not going to get through this. And that's the depth, I think, of what we have to face to turn this around. And I, I think, obviously, I'm big on storytelling. I think we've evolved to tell stories. Mm -hmm. We don't respond that well to only facts and logic and graphs. And I think if you go back through different cultures, the story they told about their relationship to the planet was fundamentally different to what we have now. We've got right sitting in our own country, the indigenous culture that say, we are custodians of the land. What a beautiful language. Um, if you go back to ancient China, they, they called themselves reverent guests of the land. And there's this beautiful story of this Admiral Zhang who sailed the world with 28,000 men on 350 ships. And they didn't conquer anyone or take any slaves. They collected animals and took them back to the emperor to show off the wonders of the natural world. 
Then you cut to the scientific revolution, other things happen there, but suddenly Bacon, uh, Descartes, they start to use words like, we must hound nature in her wanderings, we must tame her, we must enter and penetrate her every corner, is what Francis Bacon said. So the language suddenly shifts and our underlying metaphor for our story dramatically shifts. So I think we're not going to get through that unless we can reimagine that story and that's where artists come in. It wasn't what you'd call a feminist paradigm. Sandy, what do you think our chances are of getting this kind of change? And I mean, that's very much a feminisation traditionally of the way of looking at things, more of a nurturing role, more of a caretaker role. Yeah, I, look, you know, I don't, I don't want to sort of make uh, this a, a gender issue, mm. but, you know, women have traditionally uh, get, have the nurturing role and it's, um, you know, I, I guess either through our children or through our parents, we are always looking at the longer view. And I do actually think that a lot of the women I know take a very a much longer view of what we're actually delivering. Um, and so, you know, women out there, we, you know, you, we need you to sort of be upfront and actually leading this. But to, to again, to what Damon was saying, it's sort of, um, there, it is, every one of us has a responsibility. So there are things that every one of us can do. And um, I, I'm really proud that in, um, in April, we're going to be doing our first Ghana burning. So we're doing a burning of a section of the parklands. And that's about bringing back traditional knowledge of the fire, the managers of fire, and actually what that does to an area. So we're actually um, using that, which I'm incredibly proud that we're going to be doing that here. It's fantastic. And it's not too many places where it will work appropriately anymore, but it's brilliant that it's being used yeah, in this work, Working with the elders yeah. and working with the horticulture yeah. team. And so, you know, it takes away the, the weed seeds and brings back the natural plants that should be yeah. there. Now, I want to clarify, I don't want to make it a gendered issue either. In fact, if you look at the previous cultures, it wasn't a gendered thing to be nurturing, to be, um, to be custodians. It's we need to reclaim it as every member of society. So it's actually more important that men are showing leadership in in that nurturing and and caretaking and custodian model rather than ownership and possession well, that's quite frankly even if they look at it as an economic yeah. deliverable you know <laughs> that you know they don't actually have to look at it as a nurturing thing like yeah. in terms of the economics and the viability of our, our countries going forward and our cities going forward yeah. this is at the core of that now, we've got another, say, 10 minutes of discussion before we get to um, tipping points, which I want to get to very soon. I do just... There's something that we often hear. Um, and uh, Bob Carr, who was the Premier of New South Wales for a long time and um, is now um, a, a joint professor of industry and, and climate change at UTS in Sydney, is writing regularly that the markets will fix this out. The headline from Monday the 2nd of March, the market will sort out our emission targets. Can we leave it? We've talked about some, you know, what's happening at state. I know what you think. <laughs> can, I just need a response to the markets and what the markets can do and where they will fall short. I know you've got some pretty strong feelings on this, Michelle. So, if you look at the five key drivers of biodiversity loss, one being land use change, the second being um, direct exploitation of species, the third being climate change, the fourth pollution, and the fifth invasive species. Of all of those, perhaps less so invasive species, but of all of those, caused by market-based issues, caused by a neoliberal narrative that if we continue to exploit, exploit our planet for 
individualistic reasons, then we're doing a good, a virtuous thing, a good thing, we're all going to be better off. So that to, sounds to me like we're trying to fix something by digging a bigger hole. Which, the only thing that will fix is a shallow swimming pool. So um, let's be clear about that. Anyone want to add anything to the, yeah? No? Oh, I just think, you know, there is, there is some supply and demand in there in terms of if we all switch tomorrow to green energy and green electricity, then maybe those coal fire plants would actually shut down. Oh, come on, they'll keep going even when they're losing money because of that $29 billion, $29 billion welfare but check. But it's the get. choice we yeah. all have. Yeah, that, that illusion of a free market, I think, you know, yeah. is starting to come. Uh, there, really are, there are really interesting examples in other countries of really clever policy around these things, some of these um, issues we're talking about, that there's no way a market's going to put on themselves. So Japan's a really great example where they were running really low on some of their metals. So they actually, the government made it illegal to throw away things like washing machines and phones and whatnot. They put a small levy on that and then created what they called a remanufacturing industry. So they then created thousands of jobs to break down those metals and reuse them. They now recycle 98% of their metals. Wow. So are we, is that going to happen if we just let the market do that? Very unlikely. We mm. need certain triggers to really push people in the right direction. Okay. Will, is that you? Yep. No, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, the, my comment here is, as a scientist... When you, when you look at a system that has caused the problem, it is extremely unlikely it's going to be the solution. <laughs> I like that. Now, Will, your work has been in tipping points more, you know, we're used to hearing about the tipping points of climate change, you know, the methane release from the tundra and, um, and the Amazon, but you've been, your interest has been piqued by social tipping points. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think um, when I was looking at this problem the last year or two when we're really running out of time and it looks like how can we possibly move fast enough. But the tipping points can operate in a positive way too. And I really get a strong feeling we're approaching a social tipping point here. Uh, I think as Michelle pointed out, it only takes three and a half percent of people mm. to really get out and move. And you can tip a system. But the interesting thing, there are two, two features of tipping points that I think really give us, I think, well, some, some strong incentive and some strong hope. One, one is that you, you can never really predict when a tipping point is exactly going to occur. And that means you often overestimate how long it's going to take. It, it, it's invariably a surprise. So I could see in two or three years, Australia is just going crazy with renewables. Coal's totally on its way out. No one's investing in it. And people said, wow, that was fast. But it's building. Mm. So the point is tipping points can happen uh, they're hard to predict. They can happen very fast. And then when you look back, you can say, why didn't we see this coming? But I sense now that, that on a several issues, whether it's better custodianship of, of, of Australia's biosphere, whether it's greenhouse gas emissions, whether it's a lot of social issues too, uh, I think the present exploitative system is running out of petrol, uh, and I think we're going to see a tipping point. My guess is within five years, five years from now, Australia's going to look very much different than it looks in 2020. I sincerely hope so. Well, we're ready to go to audience questions while we're waiting. If you, now, we have the microphone down the back. If you've got a question for anyone on the panel, please... Uh, OK, they're, they're coming thick and fast over there. And uh, did anyone want to add anything to... We've got about 30 seconds. Social. No, sorry, the mic is in their hands. <laughs> yes, your question, please. 
Uh, hi, I had a question for Sandy for sure, and it's just around transport change in the City of Adelaide. So recently we've heard Melbourne City Council fast track 44 kilometres of protected bikeways going from delivering 10 years to four years. In Adelaide, we've been trying to get one east-west bikeway for three years, and council, including Sandy Vashore, have been procrastinating, and they've been listening to a very small group of business owners and lawyers on one street, Flinders Franklin. They've refused to go to any public consultation on Flinders Franklin to any bike riders or anyone who uses the city. And so you're asking, Sandy... I'm asking, how am I optimistic about transport in the city of Adelaide? Um, <clears throat> they're in the middle of that... And hi, how are you? <laughs> they're in the middle of that. We had a, a, a change of councils. I have eight new councillors that I've had to bring on board with the, um, the transport and the networks, which we are doing at the moment. Um, so we reignited that work last year. Um, it is our intention to actually put in uh, more bikeways in Adelaide. Um, there are already bike routes through Adelaide and we completed the Frome Road north-south. Um, we're looking at where we can actually put the east-west. And at the same time, I'm working with the state government through the Capital City Committee to do a whole of-city access strategy. And that's really looking at tram networks, bus networks, cycling networks, you know, how we move traffic in and through the car, and also pedestrianisation because, you know, your feet are your friends and we re live in a flat city and it's really easy to get around. So we're trying to look at all of the networks as opposed to one in isolation. And I'm actually uh, still very optimistic that we will deliver that east-west within my term. Within one term, terrific. Okay, now, um, are, we, are all of our questions gonna be a town hall meeting for Sandy or? Okay, great. Uh, where's the mic now? Thank you. Hello. Um, my question's to Bill Stephan. Hello. Thank you for all the work that you've done in your life to help with the climate yeah. crisis. Yes. <laughs> and this question can probably be answered by all of you, but as individuals, what is it, what's the things that we can do to help? How can we be part of solving this problem as me as one? Okay, there's a, a lot of things you can do and that's been canvassed, but I want to state that a little bit differently, which is what we did in Canberra. We acted together to change the system yeah. by tipping an election and getting on board a government which was committed to get our emissions down, changing our transport system, etc. So there's a lot you can do as an individual. I don't want to downplay that. But collective action is going to be really important in solving this problem. So get out, get active politically in your own community, at the state level, help change things at that level because that needs to change too, not just your own actions. Terrific, I love that. Uh, just over here. Hello, thank you. Um, the Netherlands recently was successful in suing the government over their failure of duty of care for addressing climate change. Do we have any chance of doing that in Australia and who's leading the way? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I can yeah. yeah, okay. Um, we, 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 we did that in, in New South Wales. There was a thing called the, um, the Rocky Hill coal mine at Gloucester. Uh, and I was an expert witness on that. And we actually stopped the mine. Uh, and one of the reasons was climate change. It wasn't the only one, but it certainly was an important reason. But it has so spooked New South Wales that they're actually trying to pass legislation to ban the courts from using climate change as a, as a uh, criterion. But, but, 
But the legal system can help us. It was a, it was a very interesting experience for me to be cross-examined. I must tell you a story which was, which was very, very intriguing and a little bit funny. The, the, um, the, the attorney for the coal mine was making the case that the emissions from that coal mine were so small they didn't matter. It was 0.0000% of global emissions, and therefore it did not affect temperature at all. And he expected me to fight back, so I turned to him and I said, that's a great argument and I'd like to use it. I said, my income tax is 0.00000% of the Australian revenue. Would you co-sign a letter? I'm going to say, I'm not going to pay my tax anymore because it doesn't matter. But it, and he, sh he, shrunk, he shrunk back in horror. I would say stay tuned on that. There is something brewing behind the scenes and it will come out this year. Oy. You heard it here first. <laughs> Don't sue me. Okay. And just I'd just like to add from a legal perspective, very different legal arguments went into the Rocky Hill case and what you're seeing in the, in the Netherlands. If we were going to run a case similar to the Netherlands case, you might even say, well, we, we might not be able to do that. But what it demonstrates is innovation, creativity, imagination across a range of systems that's going to get us there. Great, fantastic. Where's the mic now? Um, oh, sorry, thanks. This message probably partly for Sandy, but definitely Damon and Michelle. Michelle. Um, I first got inspired about 2014 on last May the 15th at a certain election when I needed something to inspire myself. Um, I'm really pleased that Equinor have now moved out of the bite, hopefully. What I'm curious about, and wonder if Damon can answer, is I have really crazy visions sometimes. And I had this idea that maybe in the bite we could have one of these kelp farms that would help improve biodiversity, that would power and help to renew some of the communities out between us and Perth and really show how new economies can be sustained. Damon, thank you. Right. That's a beautiful vision. Congratulations. The, for those that don't know, um, we show this seaweed solution in the film. And seaweed is one of the fastest growing organisms in the world. It can grow half a metre a day and up to 50 metres long. So its ability to sequester carbon out of the atmosphere is extraordinary. Um, scientists have discovered that if you then harvest that seaweed and store it below 1,000 metres, the weight of the ocean can store it on the ocean floor. Plus fish can lay their eggs there, we can use it for biofuels and fibres and all sorts of plastics. Uh, and there is actually the first global seaweed symposium happening um, this year, where all the ocean experts and engineers are coming together to ask these kind of Fantastic. questions. How do we scale this up really quickly? Uh, since the film, there's a raft of impact investors that have said, I want to invest in that once it's tangible. So what we're doing in Tassie is building that first platform with the University of Tasmania. We're just about to launch another one in Devon in the UK and the waters, I suspect, are cool enough in the bite that we could actually regrow and have huge kelp forests out and there. So your vision may come alive. All right. And there's also um, work led by um, Minister David Spears on a blue carbon strategy and we've also, we're just talking to Will, they're doing the testing that, that if we actually use that to feed our cows that the methane is reduced. So we actually get lots of hits off that. So mm. stay tuned. Yep. Absolutely. And the mic is over here, yeah? Um, this is for Yep. Um, 
For the UN Sustainable Development Goals, what is South Australia doing, it, doing to um, put them forward? Thank you. Australia. Yeah, <laughs> so I can I can talk for the that city would be of Adelaide, you, Lord Mayor. <laughs> um, well, we're very minor, mi uh, mindful of the UN Sustainability Goals, and I proudly wear my little badge. And what we did is in the exercise, we're just doing a new strategic plan for the city. And what we did is um, a ready reckoner where we actually went through all of the goals to see if we're ticking off on all of them in terms of what we're doing in environmental leadership. And I was very pleased to say that we pretty much are ticked off on all of them. Right. Oh, yes, and another question. Um, this is for the whole panel, but what can kids do today to help our environment? Yeah. Uh, uh, I would say that what you're doing is making a difference. Your voices are being heard and keep going because it's really making a difference and we've got to step up and support you more, but congratulations on what you have done so far. There's a really great initiative called Climate Clever Schools and they come and meet the students and your principal, and then you learn how to change your own little microsystem there. So you learn about all the machinations of how that works, which teaches you how systems work in a bigger sense. So reach out to them, get them to come to your school, and you could actually make your school carbon neutral, which would be the great way to end a first step. Is that a nationally available? They're now national, and wow. Planet Arc have just uh, offered free feasibility studies for any school that want to implement solar. So get out there and get involved. Fantastic. Um, we're doing the same thing through the Carbon Neutral Adelaide program. So we actually did the schools pilot and teacher parents. That's it. You know, it's, there's an extraordinary amount of information that you actually can help everybody else. No? Okay, good. And I know that you um, enacted your democratic right to uh, have a message on the speaker that we can't read a little earlier. So go you, sister. Uh, <laughs> but okay. Okay, your, your question. Since you asked. But my question is, I'm a teacher and I have remained for years and years despairing of the fact that children do not... I'm a teacher at primary school. They do not systematically learn about the ecosystem of Australia, let alone their local area. They will learn a little bit with one teacher. They might learn a little bit from Primary Connections, which was a science based mm. program. However, it was focused on the hard sciences, not biological sciences, not the soft sciences. The school, you know, does not have microscopes, you know, that plug into computers to this day and I've been asking for the mm. 10 years. Now, what are we doing about a systematic curriculum that every child has the right to learn for their own survival in this country and why are we still planting succulents from Mexico <laughs> in our streets? Uh, um, I, I can answer part B, tequila. Uh, no, uh, that's just a guess from an interstater. Um, but can I just say the thing that I heard that I really love the sound of is that systematic thinking from um, the carbon... What was the schools program called that you were talking about? Clever Climate Schools. Clever... Yeah, but clever also, um, yeah, we've got 31 free lesson plans on our website that's mapped to the Australian curriculum and we've had 17,000 teachers download those. So 700,000 kids have now been taught those resources. So I'd encourage you to go on the website and have a look at those. That might be the small step. We need a larger pivot. But there are tools out there, and I think this, you, what and you're saying is so important. And can I, yeah, can I suggest, as probably the only person who used to be a science teacher on the panel, um, go to CANASTA, which is the Australian Science Teachers Association, which is open to primary school teachers as well, and enlist, you know, make this a real issue with them and enlist support from other teachers to, to get something going. 
It is, it is dreadfully important. Um, it's hard to cover everything in one panel, but um, yes, point taken and it has been raised now. So the microphone now is, thank you, yep. Yes, thank you. Um, thanks all to each of you. Um, I'd like to know what your understanding is of the potential for modern monetary theory uh, approaches to um, help answer that uh, uh, devilish question, how are you going to pay for it? Uh, mm -hmm. Because in reality, governments can actually create their own money to make things happen. And in particular, Sandy, are there ideas for projects that can be funded under a, a uh, jobs guarantee, such as, um, I believe, M Mitcham Council and Adelaide City Council are in adv advanced discussions towards that? Thank you. Thank you. Can okay. I quickly um, say the issue of paying for, I think, is, is just... Um, I mean, there's just, it's, it's unbelievable how much money we, I mean, we subsidise the fossil fuel industry 5.2 trillion a year, 10 million a minute. Globally. So, globally. So there's one way. There is now $18 trillion hidden in offshore bank accounts around the world. Like, when the GFC happened, we found the money. We actually created it out of thin air. That argument is just rubbish that anyone says that we could, if we wanted to, turn this around tomorrow. So I don't, I, I think, I don't know how we do that, but I think the more we can talk about that, and not be fearful of the possibility mm. of being able to do it. Of course we can, we just need the decision to be made. Thank you. And so, just to that end, I guess what I'm also interested in is there's only half a conversation happening is like, you know, what is it going to cost to do it, but what's it going to cost us not to do it mm. um, is the conversation that we're not having at the moment. And, um, and in terms of the jobs, yes, there is some work that we're doing around that, which we'll, I can't talk about now. Um, now, oh, sorry, Michelle. Just to say, we need to also change the conversation around value. That monetary mm. value is not the only value that's important. <laughs> and you can't put a price on something that's priceless. Thank you so much. Now, we are finished. We've, we've run out of time. I'm so sorry for questions, but I reckon if you quick and grab them as they're leaving, you can ask a question. <laughs> it's just a feeling. Um, but I would like to ask, I know that there's been some tough numbers and we've all faced this when we read this, when we hear about it, it's debilitating, the news that we're getting hit with. Um, we, what is it, are you happy to leave us with what it is that gives you faith that we can still fix this? Uh, I can categorically say with all my heart that we can do this. I've spent five years um, meeting the people that are trying to do it and seeing the solutions. And what gives me the most hope is the youth and how articulate they are on this particular topic. Uh, and also, and, um, but it's important, I think, that all of us understand we have to help them and we have to play an important role. My favourite all-time quote is by Robert Swan and he said that the greatest threat to the planet is the belief that someone else will save it. Mm -hmm. It's up to us. Thank you. Sandy? Um, well, I, I had the uh, absolute privilege of working with Tim Flannery for a, a few years. And uh, yes, I, look, I totally agree. I think we've said it so many times. It's up to each and every one of us. And in, as people in our roles, in our, you know, it, I'm trying to do it through my role in local government, but also advocating at the state and federal level. Um, but individually, we each have a role and we can make those choices. Individually and collectively. Michelle? Have fun doing it. <laughs> we need to get out in nature. One of the most important ways we can make sure that we're ensuring the planet is a better place is to connect with mm. the planet itself. If you can't... 
If you can't see it, you can't love it and you can't care about it. And Will? Yeah, I guess being a scientist, I'm one of the, one of the bad guys who uh, uh, gives you the message and then people say, well, give me hope. And my answer to that is, I don't give anyone hope. You create hope by taking action. Uh, and just like my three colleagues here have said, there are multiple benefits from taking action. You feel better, you're, you're getting active, you're reconnecting with the biosphere, and you're helping to solve a big problem. So don't ask me to give you hope. You go out and generate it. Take action. That's how we get hope. Thank you. And I will just, I can't believe I'm disagreeing with you on this, Will, or on anything, actually, but uh, you are not one of the bad guys. I'm sorry, uh, that is patently obvious. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please give a warm, welcoming and thanking hand, Sandy Bershaw, Will Steffen, Michelle Lim, Damon Gamo. It's been a fantastic panel. Thank you for your questions. Cheers. Thank you. That's terrific. Thank you.